So Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Let, Let me read the passage first. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The the Word of God. That is a theologically packed passage of Scripture. It's uh, one of the most theologically dense uh, passages of Scripture in the Bible, and it's only a couple of chapters removed from Romans chapter 3 that we looked at several weeks ago. Um, In this passage, Paul answers the question, how can one man's death accomplish so much for so many people? And he brings this question up because of what we saw last Lord's Day in verses 1 through 11. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm just going to remind you of what we saw. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Justification by faith produces the fruit of peace with God, access to grace, hope for a glorious future, an eternal perspective on suffering, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, awe of God's unconditional love, and assurance of complete salvation. And it's all because of the death of Jesus. That 
wins for us, purchases for us all of the blessings that salvation brings. But once again, how can one man's actions have such profound consequences for so many people? That's the point of the theology in verses 12 through 21. And so, as we're going to see, and as you've already heard, uh, Paul answers that question by comparing Christ to the first man, Adam. And in Paul's comparison, we'll learn important truths about our, our own origins, why we are the way that we are, why the world is the way that it is, and we'll learn profound truths about the nature of salvation itself. There's a lot packed in these verses. So let's get right to it. Let's look at verses uh, 12 through 14, first of all, where Paul talks about Adam, a type of Christ. So once again, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. We read about that in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, there, there was no sin in God's created world. There, uh, there was a perfect world without sin, without death. There was uh, such a place as the Garden of Eden, which was paradise on earth. And that is where God had placed the first man, Adam, and that's where God created the first Eve, the first Eve, the first woman, Eve. So that place, that world that God had originally created was unspoiled by sin. It truly was a paradise. And uh, the one man that Paul mentions here in verse 12 is Adam. He's going to mention him by name in verse 14. And so this uh, one man through whom sin came into the world, was through uh, Adam. By the way, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but our world is being force-fed, frankly, a lie, that um, we are the result of death. We're the result of a long process of evolution fueled by death that eventually produces man. But the teaching of the Bible, and Paul is very explicit here, is that man came first. Man sinned and then brought death into the world. And so death is not a creative process. Death is a destructive consequence of human sin. Death is the result of sin. But one other note here, and that is to notice that in Paul's worldview, and remember, Paul's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul, in writing uh, Romans, as well as the other books that he wrote in the New Testament that are part of Scripture, Paul was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what he's writing is the very word of God. And according to Paul, 
Adam was responsible for the entrance of sin into the world, not Eve. Even though, technically, Eve sinned before Adam did. And just for a quick refresher, um, look in Genesis chapter 2. We already looked in Genesis chapter 3, but I'd like to refresh your memory of Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. So this is before Eve existed, and we read in Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely eat die. One command, a very clear consequence. Disobey God's command and death will ensue. And then it's after that that God created Eve out of the body of Adam. And then it's after that that the um, serpent tempted Eve. And then she disobeyed and then she gave the fruit to her husband Adam and He disobeyed, he sinned by eating the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. But back in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. It's very, very controversial. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And later on, uh, he's going to say in verse uh, 16 that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation and that upon all men, Paul says. So this is really controversial. This is the biblical uh, doctrine known as original sin. Another way to look at it is um, guilt by imputation. Guilt by imputation. And the idea is that when Adam sinned, he stood in our place as our representative head. And by the way, if you think that's unfair, um, as we're going to see... uh, Jesus is the second Adam, and Jesus is our representative head. And so if you think that Adam standing in our place is unfair, you must really think that Jesus standing in our place is unfair as well. But there's, there's more to it than that. Um, this representation, that's the relationship between us and Adam Representation is something that we deal with all the time. It's a part of the world around us. Here's a dumb example, a simple example. In football, a lineman jumps off sides. The whole team is penalized. Or think about government. I mean, here, unless you've been under a rock, you understand something of what's going on in Afghanistan, and 
the original decision to go into Afghanistan was made by the president at the time, uh, President Bush, and the decision to pull out of Afghanistan and the way we pulled out of Afghanistan, that's the result of another president, President Biden. And we might not agree with any of those decisions, but that's what they do as our representative leaders. And it's just the reality in, in the world that God has set up. There are tremendous consequences, tremendous ramifications of, of decisions and actions by leaders on everybody else. Whoa. Like that, but no one got wet. So. And so in God's economy, it's God's appointment that when Adam uh, was created by God out of the dust of the ground and placed in the Garden of Eden, he represented us. And think about that even more. If you think that's unfair, a major part of that objection is you, you assume that if you were in Adam's place, you would have done better. Right? That's the assumption. How unfair of God to hold me accountable for Adam's actions, unspoken. If I was there, I wouldn't have fallen. Oh, really? Again, in God's economy, Adam was the human race. He was mankind. And he was the best that humanity had to offer, except, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, the second Adam. But there Adam was. He didn't have a sin nature. You have a sin nature. He didn't have a messed up childhood. He didn't have genetic defects. He didn't live in a toxic environment. Adam was placed in an ideal situation and he was the ideal creature, the ideal representative of humankind, mankind, and Adam still sinned. We all would have done the same or worse. That's the message from God. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And that's why it's not unfair for Adam to be our representative head. And then just one last thought on it being unfair. Keep on thinking that it's unfair. Doesn't matter. It happened. Adam sinned. You sinned in Adam. And of course, the story doesn't end there. We all incriminate ourselves by our own sins. Paul says in verse 12, death spread to all men because all sinned. So we have this twofold problem, a bad record and a bad heart. It's true there's original guilt, but there's also a sin nature that we all inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we live that out 
As soon as we have the opportunity, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how do we know that human sin originated with Adam? Paul goes on to say in verse 13, uh, lots of folks refer to this, uh, these next few verses as a tangent from Paul. Maybe it is. There's no errors, certainly. Uh, I prefer to think of it as a, as a deep dive. Here's Paul doing a deep dive in the subject that he's now brought up. And that subject is, well, let's do a little bit of um, investigation. Let's, let's trace the origin of sin. So verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. We've seen before that there was a robust Jewish uh, presence in Rome and in the church at Rome. And that's why Paul wrote so much about um, the Old Testament and the Jews and the law in the book of Romans. And so you, you could almost hear a Jew speaking up and saying, ah, but sin is the violation of God's law. And in his mind, the Mosaic law. And Paul is uh, trying to answer that. And basically what he's saying is that you're right. Sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity unto the law of God, but not just in the delivered format as God gave it to Moses, but it predates Moses. The law of God was in effect from creation. Remember we saw in Romans chapter 2 that the law is written on the heart of every human being, every image bearer of God. Of course, that law has been obscured and weakened and vandalized by sin, but it's still there. And the point is that the law, God's moral law, predates the Mosaic law, and sin itself predates the Mosaic law. So he goes on to say in the second part of verse 13, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So if sin and death in the world were the result of violations specifically of the law of Moses, then that only accounts for sin and death since Mount Sinai. And Paul's point is, but sin and death reigned from the fall until Mount Sinai. And so the Mosaic law cannot explain that. The Mosaic law is not the origin of sin. Notice what he says next in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, uh, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Uh, Adam transgressed not just a specific command of God, but a command 
spoken to him immediately by God. I mean, God literally, audibly said to Adam, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam sinned, he sinned against very, very clear light and knowledge. And so we understand death reigning in Adam's life because the warning from God was, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But then death and uh, sin and death reigned over those who didn't sin like Adam did. And it's because, as he says at the end of verse 14, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So it originated with Adam. A type. Tupas in the Greek. It means a person as bearing the form and figure of another. As having a certain resemblance in relations and circumstances. That's from the Zondervan Complete Word Study Dictionary. So Adam, Paul says, was a type of Christ. He, he uh, figuratively resembled Christ in a particular way. And as he develops the thought, it's the particular way of representation. It's the particular way uh, of being a representative head. So the conclusion of Paul's investigation here so far is... It's like you're following a fingerprint trail or a DNA trail. And he's going back through history, following the trail, and he realizes that there's this, um, uh, this connection between sin and death. That's what God promised or threatened in Genesis chapter 3. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Paul reflects on that in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is, uh, is death. And so Paul's method of investigation is, okay, let's trace death. And when we see the origin of death, then we'll see the origin of sin. So he makes his way back to Moses. That's kind of an obvious waypoint. But then he sees that death was reigning before Moses. So he goes all the way back to Adam and he sees, ah, this is where sin and death originated with. Once again, one man. That's his point. Just as Adam acted in behalf of those whom he represented, so Jesus acted in behalf of those whom he represented. But then Paul is going to clarify that Adam is not an absolute type of Christ. There are similarities but there are also differences. And that's what he's going to bring out next. So, point number two, verses 15 through 17, Christ's gift exceeds Adam's trespass. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So, once again, Adam was a type of Christ, 
a type of the one who was to come, but not in every single respect. There is one particular point, especially in which Adam is not like Christ. And it's in the particular area of what Christ gives to his people. And he refers to that as the free gift. And in verses five, uh, 15 through 17, free gift in the ESV shows up uh, five times. Five times. And we'll see that twice in verse 15, another time in verse, uh, uh, two more times in verse 16, and another time in verse 17. Five times, free gift, free gift, free gift. And if you're wondering what that free gift is, we can peek ahead a little bit in verse 17, and Paul defines it. It's the free gift of righteousness. The free gift of righteousness. That is what God required of Adam and Eve. Righteousness. Not just innocence, not just a clean slate, but righteousness. Always being right-wise with respect to their relationship with God. And because of sin, because of the sin of our first parents, and because of our own sin that we do and think and say, Every single day of our existence, we have no righteousness to offer. And so what we need is justifying righteousness. And the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says here, it is a free gift. God gives what we cannot earn. The free gift of righteousness. It's justifying righteousness. Now notice the uh, next sentence in verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many and here is what Paul wants you to hear. Here is what God wants you to hear. It's not just this one-for-one one correspondence. All right, there's sin. We need righteousness. There's condemnation. We need justification. It's not just one-for-one. One. What Christ gives as our representative head far exceeds what we get through Adam. That's the, um, the, the gist of Paul's language. N notice it again. Much more abounded, abundance. In the songs that we sang, we, we sang about the, the grace of God, vast, and free. It's vast. And we talked, we also sang in another song about how we, we've all sinned, but God's mercy is more. 
And it's not just, it's not just more in quantity. Okay, there's 16 ounces of sin, and so God gives us 16 ounces of mercy. It's, it's not that. There's, there's sin, and our guilt is mountains and mountains, mountain ranges upon mountain ranges of guilt and condemnation. And mercy, because of the nature of what mercy is, it's more. That's what Paul is saying. It's not that Jesus is equal with Adam. He far exceeds Adam as the second Adam because what he gives, the grace of God, justifying righteousness, salvation itself, full and free, far, far surpasses what we have in Adam. And that's the nature of the grace that Christ brings. The Apostle John wrote in John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's what you get through Jesus. Not a little bit of grace, not just a one-for-one correspondence quantity of grace, but grace upon grace. Notice in verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So here's another contrast. The act of Adam brings death, condemnation. The act of Jesus brings the exact opposite, life and justification. Christ's free gift results in our being declared righteous by God himself, Christ's free gift exceeds Adam's trespass. And then in verse 17, for if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So here the contrast can be seen in these two reigns, R-E-I-G-N. There's the reign of death. And we sure see that, don't we? We're in a world that is surrounded by death. So much so that we often say death is a part of life. Well, in a way, that's true, but the Bible says that death itself is the last enemy. Death is our enemy in that sense. Jesus has conquered death for believers, thank God. But death is everywhere. Death has been reigning in the world since Adam's sin. And then here's this competing reign. 
Paul calls it um, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life. So righteousness reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that it's not um, this contrast among equals. It's, it's not a near-peer conflict. You have the reign of death and the reign of righteousness in life. That's, that's not it. Paul says the one reign overcomes the other reign by necessity, by the nature of the case. If you are in Christ Jesus, you've received the free gift of righteousness through faith. You've been given the gift of eternal life. You've been raised to newness of life. And you are now in the reign of life that by itself has overcome the reign of death. It's sort of like light and darkness. As soon as there's any amount of light in darkness, doesn't matter how much darkness there is or how long it's been there or how hard it tries, light always overcomes darkness. And in the kingdom of God and in the, the providence of God, the reign in life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ always prevails the reign of death. And so Christ's gift exceeds far, super abundantly exceeds Adam's trespass. Then Paul goes on, uh, he comes back to this subject of representation, imputation. So he develops more this idea of one for all. Remember, that is the point. He, he's trying to prove from the theology of the Bible why it is a real thing that one man can stand in the place of another. So one for all, verses 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The idea there is not that the consequences are the same. There's a trespass leading to death. There's uh, righteousness leading to justification. The point is that one man, in each case, represents someone else. And by the way, the all men there are also not equal. Because we know that all men are not justified. We are justified by faith, we were told in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. We're told that hell is a real place and it's a populated place. Enter by the narrow gate, right? Jesus said, for wide is the gate and uh, easy is the way 
that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few who go in by it. And there's so many other passages that teach that hell is real and it has a population. Everyone is not now justified and everyone will not be justified. This is an illustration of the one for all, the one for many. Both Adam and Christ represent those who may represent. And then notice verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that's just the clearest statement in the Bible of the doctrine of imputation. Uh, We've seen that earlier in um, Romans chapter 4 with that word counted, uh, logizomai. Remember, it's a a counting term. And the idea is that by Adam's disobedience, many were accounted sinners. Conversely, by one man's obedience, that's Jesus. Remember what Paul would uh, write in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus would be obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Christ's active and passive obedience are counted to us, counted to those whom he represents. So here, Paul's argumentation um, throughout this passage basically comes to a head. He's, He's proved his point. Here is why it is a real thing, it's a legitimate thing, it's a biblical thing, it's a legal thing, that one man can stand in the place of another. Here is why so many blessings, so many benefits can accrue to those who believe in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has done in their place. And so Paul brings it home. Here's the so what. God's abounding grace through Jesus Christ. He does come back to the subject of the law. Now, the law came to increase the trespass. That was the purpose of the law of Moses. There were multiple purposes, but in terms of the relationship between the law of Moses and sin... The law of Moses functioned as an x-ray. By the the law is the knowledge of sin. He says that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. But also not only an x-ray, but here in uh, Romans 5 and verse 20, a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass can't create something, but it can magnify, can blow up something that's already there, and that's what sin does. 
uh, uh, that's what the law does. The law makes sin exceedingly sinful. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 and verse 13. the, The law brings out the ugliness, the pollution, the evil of sin. But the Mosaic law doesn't create sin. It is not the origin of sin. That's the function of the law. Then he goes on to say, but where sin increased, and that's what happens, the, the, the more commands there are, the, the more statutes there are, the more that sin increases. And it's not just because the, the, the law is multiplying and sinful mankind remains constant. There's something in the heart of every one of us that rebels against the law and authority of God. And so as um, the law increases, our own sin increases as well because we don't want anyone to rule over us. But even though that's true, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. It's like there's this race, this race to the death. Sin is trying to get ahead of God's grace. So it abounds and abounds and abounds and accelerates. But it cannot overtake the grace of God. Where sin and death abound, grace abounds all the more. So that in verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And guess where we see an outstanding illustration of this? But in the man who wrote these very words, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. John Bunyan, the Baptist preacher and writer from the 1600s who spent many years in prison for his faith, by the way. In fact, it was in prison that he wrote his uh, famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. When he wrote his autobiography, John Bunyan titled it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And of course, John Bunyan was borrowing Paul's own words. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Paul wrote this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor. And he wrote elsewhere, like in Galatians 1.13, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Luke wrote about Saul of Tarsus, who would become the apostle Paul. But Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
That's what's going on in Kabul by the Taliban. They're intentionally on a seek and destroy mission against Christians. The Apostle Paul did very much the same thing before he was converted. But in 1 Timothy 1, he goes on to say, but I received mercy, and in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. There's this super abundant, exceeding grace of God that far surpasses, far exceeds our sin. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me, Paul wrote, with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says these wonderful words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or I am chief. And so when Paul writes the things that he does in Romans chapter 5 and in all of his writings, he's not writing as a detached, hypothetical, theoretical kind of theological professor. He's writing as a real man, a real sinner who knew what it was to be dead in his trespasses and sins, to hate Jesus and his kingdom, to hate Christians so much that he, that he acted for their death. And then he knew what it was for that very same Jesus to save him by his grace and mercy alone. If you're not a believer, this is great news for you. We don't call you to go through a checklist of do's or don'ts to try to get your life right first and then come back and talk to us. No, the good news of the gospel is come as you are with a heart that is repentant, trusting in Jesus, and come to this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives the gift of the very righteousness of God to those who put their trust in him. It's not a do religion. It's a done religion. Jesus has done it all. Amen. Come to him and be saved.